Good day, and welcome back to the Beyond the Balefire podcast. It is I, your host, Wish, and I want to start off with an apology. I am very sorry for the unannounced month-long break that I took. I had some really intense and difficult life stuff happen right before the holidays, and I just really needed to heal and just be present with myself. So I tried to record during that time and it just was not happening it was not going how I wanted it to and you might have seen that I actually did publish an episode during this time but I was so emotionally and physically fatigued that I didn't really listen or edit that episode and later on I did go back and listen to it and I had a wake-up call because I realized I sounded so insanely out of it that it actually opened my eyes to the fact that I was disassociated and that I needed help and whatever that meant. So I needed to rest and I needed to help myself and get the help that I needed in order to be okay. So here I am. I am rested and feeling better and in a whole new year. So thank you for being here and being patient with me and also happy 2022. I have some seriously big hopes for this year because I did not have big hopes for 2021 and to be quite honest 2021 felt like a ball of chaos and very unstable. 2021 was like three years in one and it was over in like the blink of a freaking eye and I am super ready for grounded stability and happiness in the new year this year and I hope that is how you're feeling about it too. Hope you are pumped for this year because 2021, if you could like sum it up, it was like a big shoulder shrug and I want 2022 to be like a jump for joy (laughs) because that's what I need. So I'm just thankful to be stepping into a more grounded and creative place and I really hope that the new year was good for you. I hope that your whole holiday season was wonderful. I have some really juicy stuff coming for you this year. Quick reminder, my episodes, other than this one, because the new year did just happen, so coming out the end of, you know, all the holiday stuff, but a little reminder, other than this one, from here on out, episodes are going to be published three days before the dark or the full moon. I want to hopefully give you time to work with the energies that I give you if you so choose. The Dark Moon episodes are going to be continuing our Magic of Trees series and the Full Moons are going to be open just so we can, you know, explore whatever esoteric topic comes into the frequency. So I will tell you we are going to be doing a lot of talk about mythology and folklore as well as like real life techniques and magic from my own personal practice and grimoire because all I can give you is my life (laughs) and I love learning about different ways that magic manifests in people's lives on podcasts and on pagan content, but in my personal opinion, I feel like there is a lack of actual like, hey, do this now or try this today kind of content, virtual grimoire pages and podcast form, so to speak, is kind of what I hope to grow this into in a way. So we're going to tell some stories. We're going to talk about doing some magic and hopefully fill that gap that I have noticed and who knows I'm, I'm not going to settle into one specific thing but I am going to just try and give you as much digestible and approachable information as I can 
So that's a lot of housekeeping stuff. To close it out, I just want to give you my sincerest gratitude right now that you're here with me today, patient <laughs> and returning. I really appreciate you being here again. And if it's your first time, welcome, welcome. I am sending you a big blessing of peace and prosperity and joy through the airways right now. I hope you feel it. And without further ado, today we are going to be discussing an absolute celebrity arguably the most infamous fruit of all time, the pomegranate. And the pomegranate has lore and history that spans across the globe. So we're in for a treat today. Today's episode also might be like a little longer than, you know, usual, but that's okay because it's going to be fun. Here is what the practicalherbalist.com has to say on pomegranates. Quote, Despite pomegranate's somewhat rugged appearance with its wild growth habit and somewhat thorny branches and long leathery leaves, pomegranate shapes fruits that house potent medicinal energies. Pomegranate seeds can help prevent cancer, ease the effects of aging, and prevent unwanted pregnancy. And that is just the beginning. It is no wonder that Persephone used those same seeds to shape the story of her marriage and that kings, queens, and deities have identified with its power. Who can argue with the magic that strong? When you invoke the magic of pomegranate, you draw down on the energies necessary to solidify shape. Hold your intentions well and pomegranate will help you create in big and powerful ways. End quote. And indeed, the pomegranate does hold a very ancient and powerful magic. For me, it is a wintertime magic because winter brings forth like vivid imagery of blanketed snow and evergreens and bright red fruits. So I do most of my work with pomegranate seasonally. It is harvested in the late autumn and winter, so that makes complete sense. And the medicine and magic of this powerhouse of a fruit comes just really naturally for me during this time, at least living in the United States and having a North American winter. So this fruit and its power are not, you know, just a winter fruit. They definitely have year-round interest, but it's a really great fruit and plant to work with right now. And like I said, you know, there's not many places the pomegranate has not touched. So if you live in a place where you are not having winter right now, that is okay. This is totally timeless if you so desire. The pomegranate really owes thanks to the myth of Persephone and her crowning as queen of the underworld because like everybody knows about that myth if you are even <laughs> slightly adjacent to the mythology realm uh, and most of the time even if you're not. So this fruit has just been immortalized by that myth but the pomegranate's history goes way beyond Greece and it stretches through India, China, Egypt, and it permeates ancient texts, especially the Brahmic religious texts, so much so that scholars have debated for a really long time on whether or not the pomegranate could actually be the forbidden fruit. Yeah, like the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge. You might've heard of it. <laughs> Just like the apple, the pomegranate is very round and very viciously red. And on the tree, which its leaves are uh, partially evergreen, so on the tree it is just, it, it screams at you from the tree. And much like the apple in that way. But there are more ties than, you know, uh, shape and color between the apple and the pomegranate. In the botanical latin name of pomegranate it's called punica granatum which literally means seeded apple so perhaps you're kind of picking up on my hint now 
But for a moment, to explore this further, let's go back to Rome in the year 382 AD. And at this point in time, Christianity had been picking up quite a lot of speed, and uh, the last 100 years had really shown exponential growth for Christianity, but like the last 50 years, the religion had just burned like wildfire through the continent of Europe, especially with the conquests of Roman Emperor Constantine, because he was the first openly Christian Roman Empire. <laughs> Roman Emperor, excuse me. And the Roman Empire was huge, and it covered so much of Europe at that time. And there was so many different cultures being assimilated into Christianity because Constantine made Christianity the legal um, religion of the Roman Empire. And ugh, why is that so hard for me? The Roman Empire. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. Um, but because of multiple efforts to create biblical canon because of all of the different cultures that were being assimilated into Christianity, there was the need for one official version of the Bible. And so the Pope at the time, uh, Pope Damasus, in 382 AD, he decided that he was going to take on this task and fill this need and kind of make a name for himself, so to speak. So he decided to put a council together and for two weeks, they were going to sit down and map out what would eventually unify the previous efforts for a official canonization of the Bible into what is still today's official biblical canon. They, they did accomplish the task they set out to do. So because of the nature of the task, they really needed a good translator that was trusted and knew what he was doing to help write the story of the Bible into the official Latin of Rome and the official Latin of the Roman Church. So, you see, this is where we get a few of the decrepancies of the Bible. Um, language is just, it's just not one size fits all whatsoever. Even English is just strange and baffling sometimes. So, the Pope and his council of clergymen faced a huge task by taking these different versions of all of these cultures and the Bible and turning them into one version of the Bible in a language that was wildly different from all of these different places. So here is where uh, Pope Damasus's uh, entrusted secretary comes in. His name was Jerome, and he was the leading biblical scholar of his time, and he was also the second-hand man of the Pope for a while because he made quite a name for himself, but this is not a podcast about Christianity, so we are not going to get into that. He was, however, made a saint for his services in the canonization and because of how freaking famous he was at the time, but he was really flippin' smart, and he was super Christian, and he was the excellent choice for translator in this task. And um, he was really known for his piety and devotion to God, even though he was a little eccentric. But he also had, notably, extremely anti-pagan ideals. 
and the Pope wanted to use that to help them establish a canon that irrevocably established the all-powerful nature of the Roman Catholic Church. So, how does this relate? (laughs) I'm getting to it, I promise. This is what led us to using the term malice in the translation of the Garden of Eden story in reference to the forbidden fruit. At the time, the word malice meant apple, but it was also a generic term for any fruit with seeds and flesh around those seeds. So, malice meant apple, but apple meant seeded fruit, as well as apple. Kind of like how the word fair has multiple meanings, but it's spelled the same way. You get the idea. So, using this word specifically was deliberate because malice had a another double meaning, and it also meant evil. So, they thought they were very clever uh, because this word served as a useful pun for the church. It helped them vilify Eve and her choice of sovereignty. And I love dismantling Christianity, as you can tell, which is why this uh, is an extremely long-winded way of getting to my point. But Christian or not, like, we all know the story of Eve's choice in one way or another. We all know that Adam and Eve lived peacefully in the Garden of Eden, shielded by God and happy as a clam until a serpent tempts Eve and she seals the fate of humanity. So, with the illumination of the choice to use malice to describe the forbidden fruit of the Tree of Knowledge, we see how the church was intending to paint Eve's choice, the choice of a woman picking personal sovereignty over the men that she's serving, as evil and to paint it as against God. This really deepened the grip of the patriarchal society of the Roman Empire and was helping to shape the trajectory of, honestly, our our world up until the present day right now. This all seriously affects how our world uh, currently works. So when I think of Eve's choice, I just, I don't see an ungrateful daughter of God or a disloyal wife with bad intentions and who wanted to trick her husband and who doomed humanity through selfishness. No, I see a woman who claimed her right to her own body and claimed her right to her own life. And I see a human being with enough intelligence to question rather than follow blindly. And we know how Christians love that kind of thing. So, above all, I, I see a woman with the strength to choose the path of self-sovereignty and freedom. So, with that said, coming back to pomegranate, we can't know definitively what the forbidden fruit was. But at the time, like I said, malice was a generic term for fruit. And I think that... By the end of this episode, you will have your own opinions on what the forbidden fruit might have actually been, and it will probably be in favor of the pomegranate. It is no secret that Christianity took its inspiration from all of the quote-unquote pagan religions around it, and this is historical fact. This is not opinion. You can go and find 
so many scholarly articles and books on what Christianity really did as far as <laughs> making a name for itself and taking all of these different elements. What the Romans did really well at the time was find a way to take all of the religions around them and put them into another religion so there would not be upheaval. And this is what caused Christianity to grow so much. It was so well done, all the different elements that they took from all of these different pagan religions, that it was just, it slowly built into this monster. But we will get into that method um, more in the next episode, not in regards to Christianity, but like the Roman tactic of assimilating different cultures and why they did that. But anyways, all these things they did seems to be on purpose and it worked. But there is a pagan story that mimics the elements of the Garden of Eden. And especially when you put on your historian goggles and you focus with a mythologically inclined mindset, just like the Garden of Eden, we all know the story of Hades and Persephone. I mentioned that before, and I, I know you know the story of Hades and Persephone. When I said pomegranate, it probably popped right there into the forefront of your mind. So besides Christian mythology, this is probably the most famous myth of all time. And I know what you're thinking, but wish the Hades and Persephone myth is nothing like the Garden of Eden. But that, my friends, is just not true. It is just not true. In the myth of Persephone and Hades, Hades goes to Zeus and he asks him to give Persephone to him as his wife. Persephone has been living an idyllic life away from the gods on the lush green forests and fields of the earth, minding her own business. But Zeus agrees because patriarchy and Hades claims his bride. And while in the underworld, she eats some pomegranate seeds and she becomes a queen. You probably already knew that part. But what you probably don't know is in the Orphic tradition of ancient Greek religion, Zeus goes to the underworld disguised as a snake. Turning himself into animals is the way he got away with so much bullshit and it was kind of his thing. So anyways, in short, he seduces Persephone in the form of a snake and she gets pregnant. And that child is born and his name is Zagreus. Hera, Zeus's wife, in typical Hera fashion, is very unhappy and vengeful with this. So she does what she does and misplaces her anger, also very Hera, and with the help of the Titans, they hurl a thunderbolt down to kill Zagreus, and from those ashes, humanity is born. The rabbit hole here goes so much deeper than what I'm giving you right now, but just know for now that in the Orphic tradition, Zeus and Hades were considered to be the light and dark side of the same deity. And likewise, in the Gnostic tradition of Christianity, God with a capital G also had a light side and a dark side. And the dark side was Satan. In the Bible, God often used animals to communicate to humans until Eve's choice and the fall of humanity, after of which he does not do that anymore. But in Eve's story, Satan uses the snake to tempt Eve, utilizing his power of speaking through animals that was, before this story, only attributed to God himself. This was the first example of somebody other than God, aka Satan, even though he was technically God, um, using the power to speak through animals. So knowing that, when we look at these stories, it is extremely clear to me the echoes of familiarity. Eve lives in the Garden of Eden. Persephone lives in the lush green of earth. 
Both women are given away to men against their will by an all-powerful male sky deity. Both women are tempted by serpents before the rest of humanity is brought into the worldview. And both women eat forbidden fruits to claim their sovereignty. And I will explain the sovereignty of Persephone's story more in the next episode because the next episode is going to be all about her. So was the forbidden fruit of the Bible a pomegranate? We can never know for sure. But I, however, really like to consider this my personal headcanon. That's what I believe and I am sticking to it. It's not just the stories of the Bible and Greek mythology that mention the pomegranate as a divine fruit though. No, no. The pomegranate is actually mentioned three times in the Quran, the holy book of Islam. And it's mentioned twice as something good created by God. And then it's mentioned once as a fruit found in the garden of paradise. I told you before, pomegranate had a wide reach, much, much further than Europe. And it had been cultivated for millennia in Persia, Georgia, Armenia, and the Mediterranean. In desert regions like those places in the Middle East, the desert would not mess up the ripeness of the pomegranates. So people would carry pomegranates with them and their leathery skin would safely keep the juicy ripe red fruit on the inside from spoiling. And weather-weary travelers would find just absolute bliss in this fruit. It provided essential hydration and nutrients to people in a extremely harsh landscape. So it's a super fruit and it's also just a wonderfully vivid image of being in this landscape of browns and reds and golds and feeling extremely hot and tired. And then you open up this fruit that just holds the lifeblood of earth and having that fortify you and give you the strength to go on. I love that so much. Anyways, it's, it's not just good for you. It's also absolutely delicious. And it's one of those fruits that just doesn't look real. You open it up and they're full of bright and succulent seeds and they're this deep blood red color and this blood red color actually harkens to that primal energy and primal power of the pomegranate. To explore this more we're actually going to need to go to Greece for a minute and talk a little bit about Persephone again. Um, she is definitely the one figure that is most associated with the pomegranate and in Greek mythology the pomegranate was actually created from the blood of Adonis and and Adonis was a mortal man, and he was loved by both Persephone and my girl Venus, or Aphrodite. Yep, the king and queen of the underworld both had their trysts outside of the marriage bed. Adonis had been given to Persephone as a young child by Aphrodite, and that's because Aphrodite's home was on Cyprus, and for one reason or another, the princess of Cyprus had gained the sights of Aphrodite's wrath. And Aphrodite's wrath is a wonderful, wonderful thing to talk about, but we will do that in another episode. So like most classical myths, there are multiple versions. So for our purposes, we are discussing the bones of this story, okay? All right. Aphrodite had cursed the princess to fall into lust with her father, the king. She ends up tricking and seducing him and... When he finds out what she has done, he pursues her with intention to kill her. And by the gods, familiar with Aphrodite's antics and taking pity on her, they turn her into the myrrh tree, like M-Y-R-R-H. As a tree, she actually gives birth to a baby. And this baby is Adonis. And of course, this baby has been touched by 
destiny of the gods, so he's not just going to go live a normal life. Aphrodite is watching this happen, of course. This is her drama playing out after all. So she sees the baby and she instantly loves him and she decides to save him and hide him and keep her for himself. So she gives him to Persephone to hide and take care of him while he grows and until this whole thing blows over and the Olympians forget about what she's done. So she gives him to Persephone. Persephone takes him to the underworld with her and there he grows into an absolutely gorgeous young man so gorgeous that by the time Aphrodite comes back to get him, Persephone has fallen in love with him because he is just too beautiful. And yes, that is creepy, and I do have my feels about that. But this is Greek mythology, so you can't think too hard about these things. This begins a feud between the two goddesses over this unbelievably handsome mortal man, so much so that eventually Zeus has to come and make peace between them. <laughs> and at the suggestion of the nymph Calliope, they agree that Adonis should spend a third of his time with Persephone, a third of his time with Aphrodite, and a third of his time doing as he pleases. And that's because he's really not done anything wrong. He's quite innocent here. So Adonis has no issue with this. Like, why would he? He's got the love of two goddesses. And he actually decides that he's going to spend his free time with Aphrodite because he loves her too. And she's lust incarnate, so he had no chance whatsoever. But Aphrodite doesn't like losing. So while she didn't lose completely, she also didn't win completely. She laments about her lover and that damn Persephone and for taking him from her for the part of the year that she should be spending with him. And like I said, multiple versions of this story, but we are sticking to the bones. So basically somebody got tired of this Adonis situation and one way or another, Adonis was eventually killed. He was killed by a wild boar in each of the versions of the story, but who sent the wild boar varies. Some say Ares sent the boar, jealous of Adonis and Aphrodite. Others say it was Artemis who was avenging the past. Thirdly, there's a version where Adonis refuses to go visit Persephone and she sends the boar. Either way, he dies and from his blood arises the pomegranate tree. And under this tree, Aphrodite sprinkles ambrosia onto his blood and she creates an anemone flower. Anemones are similar to poppies and they have delicate white flowers. They're usually pretty short-lived though because they are easily destroyed by a strong breeze of wind. So that's pretty similar to Adonis and his vibrant youth being gone too soon. It's beautiful, it's tragic, and in the poetry that tells of this and of Aphrodite transmuting his blood to the flower, the flower is described as being like the pomegranate with the way it looks and how it releases its seeds. So this is just tying Adonis and his transmutation into the underworld and the underworld's magic as well. And it was intentional. It was hearkening on his upbringing by Persephone and the underworld and its ruler's influence on the transmutation of death. Persephone's influence on the transmutation of death. So he dies, the pomegranate comes first, and under that pomegranate comes Aphrodite's flower. This is an allegorical way of showing the absolute magnitude of power that the queen of the underworld holds, and the pomegranate is the vessel of expressing this show of power. It's no question by now that the pomegranate is 
immensely powerful. It is the sacred, life-sustaining nectar for those desert travelers, and within it, much like women and womb bearers, as well as the vivid spark of life that brings order to the realm of the dead, as in the stories with Persephone and the pomegranate, that spark of life, that power that the pomegranate holds, it fuels turning a tragic death into a vibrant, thriving tree that hosts fruit which contain hundreds of seeds. It's a metaphorical reminder of the interconnectedness of everything and the infinity of the life cycle of which death is an extremely important and inevitable part. The tragic beauty of Adonis's lifeblood being spilled and producing a fruit tree with thousands of seeds collectively stored in their blood-red fruits is striking and absolutely moving to me. And for this reason, the pomegranate has been called the fruit of life and the fruit of the dead. It holds a duality. It represents, through these stories and through its usage over time, uh, the primal force that moves us, the space between this world and the next. It's a way to awaken your own inner alchemy. The spirit of the pomegranate can help you transmute your inner darkness into strength, beauty, power, whatever you so desire. The spirit of the pomegranate can offer the will to release and move forward come what may. It can provide the breath of life needed to honor yourself and to help us between transitional periods where we may be faced with seemingly insurmountable tasks. Simply put, the pomegranate helps you choose yourself. It's a pep talk from the space between, and it helps us make the hard choices because sometimes choosing yourself, choosing your power, your sovereignty, your hope, that can be the hardest choice of all. In magical practice, the pomegranate can be used to replace blood like real blood for reasons that may be obvious by now, or to add that element of blood, that lifeblood, that primal power of the lifeblood of the earth, the lifeblood of the under the earth. It holds a really strong chi energy. And in Chinese medicine, the chi is life force energy. It's that which flows within and without all things. In India, chi is called prana. In Japan, it is called ki. The idea is all the same though. We all have it and it can be balanced or unbalanced and it is the ultimate measure of vitality. Imbalanced chi could mean many things, but most notably, life will feel more dull if your chi is not balanced. If you are feeling dull and low, you can enchant a cup of pomegranate juice by telling it that you know its secrets. Literally, you tell your cup of juice, I know what depths you hold, sacred life blood of above and below. Come to life and flow to the spaces that need your secrets. Transmute my stagnant energy into vitality once more. And then you drink it and you feel it and you taste it and you truly be present with the pomegranate juice as you drink it. You could put this in a consecrated cup, a blessed cup, whatever you want. As long as you are envisioning the lifeblood of the conscious space because the space in between here and there is not empty, it's full. So you envision this lifeblood of this fruit holding that energy, that conscious liminal space energy, and you imagine it feeling the empty and stagnant places in your energetic body and your physical body. And you hold the truth of its power 
and know that the work will be done as you drink it. And this can be done at any point in time, but it is especially helpful when you are in a rut. And you can do this every day for a week in your sacred space, like in front of your altar, outside, whatever, and just see how it changes you for the better. Likewise, if you have um, a favorite juice or a cup that you keep on your altar, you can always whisper things, even if you don't keep it on your altar. Whatever you drink, you can activate. Just like I mentioned a long time ago, activating your stones and whatnot. You can do that with pretty much anything, but I like to do this with liquids. It works really well with liquids. So anytime you drink something, you can whisper your wishes, your intentions, your activations into it. And if you want using your breath, because it is a powerful tool of you and your consciousness, blow your breath into a circle on the surface of that to seal your intention or activation into there. And that is just a really simple and powerful way to really bring presence to your body and what you need and your magic in the moment. And it really works. So I hope that was interesting to you. I hope you learned something We illuminated some of the history of the pomegranate and its relationship to Christianity and influencing one of the biggest stories in the Bible. And we looked at where that came from and we talked about the immense primal power that pomegranate holds and how much potential it actually has for a magical practice. So next uh, episode, we are going to be talking about Persephone, and I am absolutely stoked to bring you that episode, and I've been working on it for a while. So thank you so much for being here with me. I truly, truly, truly wish you the best for this new year. Many, many, many blessings to you and to those you love. May you spend the rest of this week in good health and good spirits. Thank you so much for being here with me today, and I will see you next time.